Let me show you Africa as an entrepreneur. Africa is a fundamental part of the global economy. There are people building businesses in Africa, continental businesses that are huge businesses. So it's a vibrant, young market with lots of energy, talent, and skills. What can I do? What role can I play? What is my purpose? When we put our faith and our trust in God, He's the master strategist and always directs our path. God went after the very thing that could become a mammon stronghold in my life. He said He wants that. And every time it gets too difficult, I basically say, you are the one, this is your business, God. You will get the glory. There's the way the world does business and there's the way we do business. So come, come see that Africa. The size of our continent, along with our diverse cultures, provide us with rich insights into God and His creativity. We are excited to highlight the many influential voices of innovators and entrepreneurs across Africa. We will also feature some entrepreneurs from around the world who we think have important things to say, no matter where we call home. These are the stories of how businesses flourish and how his call to create continues to this day. Come for the content. Stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Hello and welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Africa podcast, where we spotlight the voices of entrepreneurs and innovators shaping the marketplace across the continent. This week, we are featuring Joram Muinamo. Joram is the co-founder and CEO of Sandbox International, a one-stop shop for entrepreneurs. The village model of Sandbox is globally unique as they bring together over 30 professional services and a one roof so that entrepreneurs have the expertise they need to scale up their businesses. Based in Nairobi, Joram is passionate about uncovering the potential of Africa and having a global influence. He joins us today to talk about the value that a village mindset can bring to entrepreneurs around the world. Let's listen in. So welcome back to Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm so delighted that you've joined us today and I'm here with my co-host, Efosa. Efosa, welcome on board. Hey, sister and Didi, it's good to be here. <laughs> We're thrilled to have you and we have a dynamic entrepreneur in our midst, Joram, welcome. We're so excited to have you on the show today. This, as you know, is a podcast that reaches millions of people and we know that they'll be inspired by your story. Henry loves to start with what he calls a flyover, so I'm going to try and copy Henry and just ask you to just share within two to three minutes just a bit of your background. I know you're joining us from Nairobi, lots happening, but just tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up where you are today. Yeah, so thank you so much for inviting me to this. It's such an honor and a privilege to be on this podcast. So yeah, I'm Joram Minamo. I've been an entrepreneur for a really long time, almost like straight after, you know, university, where I studied computer science, but was really, really, really interested in like business management. And I was very fortunate to get an opportunity to do international internships in Uganda and a second one in Norway. Experiences which really shaped how I see, you know, the African continent and what I think my mission in life is. 
and then came back and started to run you know a company wild international which i did until a few years ago when we founded the sandbox and i moved over i think we'll be talking a bit about that you know that's my day job the rest of the time i'm a husband i have my wife grace and i have four kids 12 9 and twins who are 3 years old boys uh, so first one is a girl the others are boys so I have a, a full house of very exciting people and yeah, very passionate, passionate, passionate African as we'll come out as I talk. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. A full house, four kids. Yes. Um, that's amazing. That's amazing. And you know, I would love to dig in a bit into this entrepreneurial pursuits. And, you know, as we were preparing for this and reading about the great work you've done, Sandbox, you know, stood out as something truly exceptional. You know, it has such a unique business model for co-working and it's the first of its kind. I know many of our listeners are familiar with accelerators and business networks, but they may not understand what you call the village model. So can you tell us a bit about this model and where the idea came from? Yeah, uh, so the village model is something that just evolved over time, but very deeply rooted in us going back to, you know, African roots and saying, you know, we've always been very communally driven people. In Africa, there's a saying that it takes a village to raise a child. And, you know, we take that saying into business where we say it takes a village to raise a business. And so... I used to run a strategy consulting firm called Wild International that's now part of the Sandbox and it's the strategy consult partner at the Sandbox. But every time we did strategy plans for our customers, they would then need to implement other things in areas like legal and tax and finance and governance. And they would always come back to us and ask, you know, who can we work with? And we realized we couldn't build all these skills internally. And so we started to partner with other experts in those fields who we would refer them to. And then at some point, it turns out that, you know, we are all serving the same customers, but we are in different locations across the city. And it was very, like, um, inefficient to have our customers move from one office to another to get the kind of help that they need. So, you know, we got a bright idea. Would it be amazing if we just all came under the same roof? And it's interesting, I always used to look at, you know, my friends in the big four and in other farms, and I'm like, why are they all like separated? Why are they in different offices when they serve the same customers? Is there like a legal reason why legal and marketing cannot sit, you know, in the same office? And I guess it helped that I didn't have a background in working in the big four or, you know, the big consulting firms. And so we just decided, like, let everyone come under one roof. And so we were fortunate enough to raise some money. We were able to put up the infrastructure. So it looks like a co-working space. It has meeting rooms. It has training facilities. It has, you know, like office space that the different consultants sit in. And once we came under one roof, we just realized it was so much more efficient to collaborate on projects with clients. It was very efficient to do referrals from one consultant to the next. And so we became this one-stop shop right in the middle of Nairobi where, you know, we are very passionate about entrepreneurs. So when an entrepreneur walks into one location, they're able to find 33 different professional services that can help their business to grow. So we became the village and that's the village that helps a business to grow. So we collaborate, we do a lot of social things together. We do a lot of professional, you know, building of each other. 
as experts. Each of them is a different company, but subscribed to the Sandbox brand. So that's when I moved and now I lead the Sandbox team in coordinating the different experts just to serve our clients and give them holistic solutions. I love the idea of a one-stop shop and everyone under the same roof. I mean, it's such an important model around partnerships and community and really resonates with the faith-driven investor and faith-driven entrepreneur community in terms of our values. But often that's quite uh, alien in our context, especially in the business world. You're right, in Africa, villages are very communal, but our business communities have mirrored much of the West where everybody works by themselves. So how have you been able to... Number one, ensure that there's trust amongst the partners and everyone is seamlessly rooted in the same values. And then how have you also changed the minds of the entrepreneurs who walk in and say, you know what, everyone here is here to help me and not take advantage of me? Yeah, I think so. One, we are really, really careful about who we select to come on board. We have like a really rigorous process now of identifying people who share our values who are passionate about their area of expertise and who are also passionate about the vision that we have, particularly to grow, you know, entrepreneurs and SMEs, because those are, you know, the entities where a lot of jobs can be created for the continent and a lot of economic impact can come through. So we have an extensive process of just selecting who comes on board. When they come on board, you know, there's like ethical guidelines and stuff that, you know, they agree to and excellent standards that they agree to that we work together to ensure we are delivering a great experience to our customers. And it takes our customers a while to understand exactly what's going on. But usually when they grasp the entirety of what they're able to get in one location, you can see the light bulb going their heads for, oh my God, everything I need is right here. And they're just mind blown. And they tend to, you know, experience one expert after another. And usually, you know, they'll experience one and get such a great experience and go to a second and a third. And they just go like, oh my God, this, you know, everything I need is here. If I need to work on my brand strategy, if I need to work on my PR, I need to work on my governance, my processes, you know, like uh, we have leadership coaches, we have we have a sustainability and ESG coach. So like anything a business would need to put in place today to thrive and succeed, we have the experts here. And uh, one of the other big advantages is because, you know, the different experts are able to collaborate. You can have like the HR accounting and say ESG come together with the permission of the client and discuss a case together of, you know, what's the best outcome for this particular client. And you end up getting a much higher quality than if you just had, you know, one tunnel vision solution coming from one, you know, consultant on one side, and then you go to another consultant who has no visibility over what the other consultant is doing and, you know, probably propose something that goes against the business. So that collaboration is turning out to bring out better solutions for the customer. In many cases, our customers also end up becoming part of the larger sandbox community. So the village has been growing. I think from our data, we know that we serve a contingent of almost 2,400 businesses who are the totality of the database of the 33 experts that we have. And so it's also a large community and a lot of value is being created there. And in the future, we just see the opportunity for so many bigger things to be done, especially on the social side and on the philanthropic side as well, with these kinds of numbers. 
Wow, thank you so much, Joram. I think it's fascinating what you're doing and what you're building. I, you know, I just wanted a quick comment on, you know, one of the things you said, which is you got all these different components that support a business and you put them under one roof. And it may sound simple to do, but that coordination necessary to do that and to build that trust is one of the critical missing pieces, right, in, I think, the development puzzle across Africa. As Ndidi said, we have mirrored our organizations in a similar way that many in the West have. The struggle with that is, you know, they're at a different phase of development. And so it's easier for them to modularize and decentralize because there are predictable interfaces that connect all these different pieces together in other parts of the world that are at a different phase. But we are at what I often call the market creation phase. And we need to really bring many of these things under one roof and provide value for our clients. So I just wanted to say, man, kudos to you for seeing that and for running with it, because it's one of those like, Joram, why are you doing all that? Why are you bothering yourself with that? I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, I did a stint in Europe and it's one of the places where the value of community started to be clear to me because I was in Norway, pretty cold country gets quite dark at some of the times. And I remember I did leave like almost in a student communal setting. And a lot of the things I would do would surprise my housemates who are, you know, Norwegian. I would walk into the kitchen and if I'm serving myself food, I would, if there was somebody else there or two other people, I would serve the three plates and give it to them and they'd be shocked and they're like, no, 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 we don't have to do this. And I would insist that, you know, in Africa, according to my culture, if somebody gives you food, you don't say no. I'm sure it might be similar right. in your cultures. And it was interesting because by the time I was coming back home, they had all adopted that communal culture and were really excited about it. And that's when I began to see that there is stuff about us that we can contribute to the rest of the world because I felt that I had, you know, gotten into a culture that was very individualistic. You'd hear stories, people would get sick and die and it would take weeks for people to realize that somebody had passed on and they have family. And so I did realize that certain aspects of Western culture were beginning to break down, you know, social ties that we find very valuable as Africans. And maybe, you know, maybe we are at the forefront of reintroducing this into business. There's an interesting analogy we talk about where in traditional African culture, they would say that when you harvested, say, a whole, you know, field of maize, you never harvested everything. You'd leave a few up and running so that somebody who doesn't have could walk by and with dignity harvest and go back home and eat. And we find ourselves, you know, referring to such analogies in the village where we are like, how do we make sure that none of the consultants is struggling with business? How do we make sure that everyone is succeeding? How do we make sure everyone is thriving? We just came out of the COVID period and some people, you know, sadly were bereaved during that time and you'd find the whole community would rally around them, visit them, contribute and, you know, spend time just grieving with them. And it was a very powerful thing to just see that we can actually introduce the village communal model 
into business and it doesn't take away from it, but actually enhances the experience that we go through as consultants. And also you find our clients now get excited about it and want to be part of you know, our community. And particularly because we work with entrepreneurs, we do realize entrepreneurship is a very lonely journey and it can be really difficult, it can be really tough. But when you have a community of people that can encourage you, collaborate with you and hold your hands, Many times you tell your clients, look, you have a whole army of people behind you just to help you succeed in your journey. And so, yeah, we find that it's just a very powerful concept that we are bringing into the business space. Thank you so much, Aroma. Thank you, Fosa, for reinforcing how unique this model is. I want to just dig in on two other aspects of your model because some might be listening and say, this sounds too good to be true. (laughs) (laughs) So who bears the cost? How is the profit sharing uh, between these partners? And last piece of the question is, you know, many entrepreneurs, especially as they're starting off, don't want to pay for professional services in our context. So how have you gotten them to part with their hard-earned cash? Hard-earned cash. So one... Because, you know, the 33 of us come together under one roof. There's a lot of costs that are shared. And we actually had done a study of this before we put the concepts together, where we realized that when we all had our, you know, smaller offices strewn across the city, we had a lot of duplicated costs for internet, for kitchen costs, for cleaning, you know, for different things. And we would still have to go to hotels for the trainings and and that kind of stuff. But I have to consolidating under one roof. We've been able to build those facilities under one roof. So you kind of see it as a shared cost across the board. And it has really brought down the cost of even serving the entrepreneurs. So we have like these small boardrooms and meeting rooms and training spaces. So instead of going to an expensive hotel, you can come into the sandbox. The requisite consultant will book the room for you. And then you can order in some food affordably and then just end up paying, you know, the fee for the professional service. Uh, We've also explored different models like cohort-based models where we have these proprietary canvases for different topics like strategy or marketing or, you know, startup coaching, business modeling. And you find that in a cohort, you're able to join a community as well and work through your business. By the end of one day, you have clear outputs of what to implement. You go through coaching and, you know, you're able to implement stuff. And so with all these different business models, you find that we've been able to split the cost of professional services. And people are always pleasantly surprised it's not as expensive as they've always come to expect from what you'd consider consulting from. So we really just ended up, you know, putting the model upside down on its head and saying, what can we do to make it, you know, accessible? In the future, we are looking towards things like technology, do-it-yourself tools that are online and apps. So I think with time, we are going to be able to even bring the cost down. We have consulting sessions for half a day or a day where you pay like 250 or $500. So we really bring down the cost and then you're able to do it on a monthly basis, one day a month, and you keep you know, putting on building blocks and in six months you find you've built an entire strategy rather than doing it all in three or three days or a week or something of a sort. So we really just split apart the entire business model to make it more accessible. And as a result, you find now that the small and medium-sized enterprises are able to afford 
different interventions at the level at which they are. I think also because of just the collective knowledge that is here, you find that we're able to accelerate businesses generally faster than they would in another setting where they just have like maybe one advisor or the like. So it's really different. We think it's like nothing that people have seen anywhere. But also now that we've brought the costs down, we find that we are able to scale it significantly. So now we can have a sandbox in Mombasa in Kenya, or we can have a sandbox in Kampala in Uganda next door or Dar es Salaam. Uh, you'd be surprised I have requests from Nebraska, from Berlin, from Brussels, you know, people who just see the model and are quite interested as to what it can do. As you say, it's not all smooth sailing. Having 33 companies under one roof means you have 33 microcultures, but you need to build like a metaculture that, you know, builds some kind of harmony across the board. You have to get the creatives and the legal and the financial people, you know, operating as one. And you can have very different perspectives. So, um, you know, one of my key jobs is also conflict resolution because a lot of that happens because people have different styles and processes of getting stuff done. But the more we work together, the more we are able to just harmonize the different things that we do together. We've been doing this for about two years and a half now since I left Wild. And I would say it's been a really intense journey, uh, learning a lot of things about how people who even share the same values can still be very different, even if they have the same goal. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm glad you mentioned Wild in one of your last sentences, and I want to get to that in a second. But, you know, what's truly remarkable about this is when you actually look at how many organizations that have made things simple, accessible, affordable, this is what they had to do. If we take Henry Ford as an example, right, that said, let me make the car affordable. You go back 120 years. Cars were like private jets today, right? I mean, they were not things that, you know, average people purchase. He said, I'm going to try to make it affordable. It cost about $10,000 back then. It's like $300,000 today. He did exactly what you're doing, right? He brought steel mills, iron ore mines, distribution, manufacturing, design, everything under one roof and figured out a way to reduce the cost. So what you're saying people are seeing now, that's exactly what happened. And in about 15 years, he was able to go from $10,000, no joke, to $260, which is about $3,500 in, in today's dollars, right? And I think that boldness, right, is what we see in what you're doing. And we're so glad that you're a person who values Christ's virtues, because as you build this organization, the, the micro organizations, as you mentioned it, will hopefully begin to experience, you know, joy, love, peace, patience, right? The fruit of the spirit. So, man, thank you for the work you're doing. It's true. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Wild. I want to touch on Wild a little bit. And yeah. you mentioned that you transitioned from Wild to Sandbox and you sort of, you know, gave that to a successor. I think it's Chris. Is it yeah, Chris? Chris yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Man, look across the continent, right? There are many big personalities, right? Many big personalities and amazing people too. But, you know, there are not as many, if I may say, big institutions, right? So we don't tend to release 
and empower. So I want you to please just talk a little bit about what that process was like for you to let go of wow, because it's like, you know, startups or businesses are like babies, right? And and we, we love them. We want, uh, and then when it's time to release, it's like, okay, the kid is now 18, go out and fend for you. How was that for yeah. you, that transition? Yeah. It was quite difficult, to be honest. I had been running wild for almost 15 years, I think, since its founding. And, you know, we had built it together and this new business model began to emerge. It was actually not planned. It's just at the point, like, we were seeing it as, like, a subsidiary or a division of wild where we're going to bring all these different experts. And then we began to realize it was a much bigger idea. And a lot of people just challenged us to hive it off and build it as a separate company, separate legal entity. And then later we realized that Wild was going to be one of the companies under the sandbox. And so this is one of the cases where, you know, a parent becomes a child under the model. And then as we went along, at some point, I really tried to be the CEO of both, but I just realized that I was constraining both businesses from exploring Mm. their full potential. And it started to become very clear that I would need to let go of one and being the like visionary, more strategic uh, competence between myself and my co-directors, it was then agreed that I would be the one to set up the new entity, which in a sense breathed some new life into me. I kind of, you know, got on board with the run of the mill of, you know, a business that was, it had grown, we had, you know, 25 employees. It was quite mature as a business, had systems, structures and processes, a strategy in place. We had done a lot to cement the culture of the business. It's actually one of the things we did continuously in my last year when it was clear the succession was going to happen. We spent every Monday having culture conversations around our vision, our values, and are we living according to that? And then we did a three-year strategy, and then I left, you know, to set up Sandbox. It was very difficult to let go. It's even more painful now that Wild has doubled its revenues since I left. (laughs) (laughs) we really joke about it in the board meetings that it's more successful now that i left and i I need to be honest i think sometimes entrepreneurs need to let go for their businesses to flourish because maybe their strengths are in the startup phase and not necessarily in the growth or sustaining phases of a business and so yeah so it's been exciting i built an entirely new team of 10 people at sandbox and just began an entirely new strategy of how do we build an entity that now is able to create an environment where 33 other businesses like Wild can grow and thrive? And then how do we build a model that we can scale? How do we build the technology behind the data? You know, how do we collect data about how experts are collaborating and interacting with one another? So there's a lot of moving pieces. And yeah, so we just have a lot of, yeah, moving pieces to be put together of an amazing team at the sandbox that's now working to build the system. But having built a business that has grown, that I've exited and has continued to thrive in my absence, you know, has been maybe even a stamp of approval to other entrepreneurs that they can come to this space of people who've done this before and we can show them the way on how to build a business that can outlast them. There was quite a number of difficult choices to make along the way. Of course, when my successor took over, he has his agenda, which I need to stay away from. (laughs) So (laughs) that we are in the same space can get very tempting for me to step back in and, you know, start making decisions again. But I've learned to really keep my hands off and, you know, just play my 
my uh, board of director role. Thank you. Thanks for explaining that. I, I think just being able to let go takes a certain level of humility and self-awareness that many of us need to continue to to cultivate. Uh, one last question before I pass it on to Ndidi is, um, well, there's no secret that uh, <laughs> the pandemic happened, uh, I'd say, like a month after yeah. you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so you, you've built this thing where we've actually said metaphorically and literally bringing people yeah. under one roof, one umbrella. And the pandemic says stay in your own under your own yeah. umbrella. <laughs> How are you able to navigate that? And if you could touch on some of the areas that were hard for you personally even, yeah. and that uh, challenged your faith and, and the business itself. We just want to learn how you overcame. Yeah, so it's interesting because the sandbox is a physical state. And so we had just launched it just a month before the COVID lockdowns began. Yeah. And so here we are, we've just come together, you know, all fired up to begin to build this thing together. And then, you know, we are forced to stay at home. And I think initially it was, you know, there was quite a bit of anxiety around. We didn't know anything about how long it was going to last, what was going to happen down the line. But we then began to think, you know, is the community about the space or is it about our collaboration? Can it happen a different way when we are not physically together? And so we began to do quite a bit of meetings online we had an organization from our funders brought us an organization that would just help us to try and figure out some of the things we could do jointly. And so we would get onto these very long meetings on Zoom initially, just trying to figure out different things about how we can keep stuff going. And then as we got comfortable with that, then we moved to build, we did like a series of how can we help other businesses understand what's happening with COVID and cope during this time because we would have a lot of discussions amongst ourselves and collaborate on solutions and learn quickly, you know, how to take trainings online, how to take coaching online and, you know, to stay in business. So we did quite a bit of publicizing like workshops to help people think through, you know, there were a lot of legal issues and HR issues and the like. And so we would just help people figure out what do they need to legally do? What do they need to do from a humane point of view? Because COVID was, you know, an intense and even sad situation for quite a number of people. And how do we keep supporting each other? How do we keep touching what you call like touching base every other day just to make sure that people are okay, their families are okay. So we managed to transition the community to the web sphere because in Kenya we had maybe six to nine months of on and on lockdown. So that tended to be difficult. But what a lot of people told me later on is that because of all the activity we were doing digitally, it seemed like we were the only ones who had answers at the time for SMEs. And so interestingly, it started to attract even a lot of big businesses or donors that were supporting SMEs at the time to contract us to do program for the SMEs. There's a program we were doing with Meta. They're a big client of ours here in Kenya. And we were able to take that completely offline to online and still, you know, achieve the same targets of the numbers we were trying to reach of small businesses. And digital marketing became very big at that point in time. So those are some of the solutions that we were helping people with. Uh, so I think it helped not to be alone because I noticed a lot of people who are alone would kind of get into these dark clouds 
where you know it seems like the sky is falling and the world is coming to an end, but that we had each other to keep motivating one another and you know keep each other going. I would say I didn't feel like my COVID experience was as intense as a lot of other business people. So uh, around town, yeah. Well done, well done. Great stories and uh, resilience against all odds. So I join a full sign in applauding you for being innovative in difficult times. I just want to dig into some of the stories because you know what people always remember are those stories of impact. And when you reflect on your sandbox experience, clearly there've been some success stories in the lives of the entrepreneurs you've helped. Can you share one or two with us on any data, any hard data you've been able to collect also on the impact of your interventions on the journeys of these entrepreneurs? Yeah, so we collect data at two levels. One is at the level of the experts that we have in here because they are also entrepreneurs in their own right. They just happen to be specialists in one professional area or another. And it's interesting that in actually the year 2020, we actually collected data on the fact that they still managed to grow their revenues on average 70% the first year. And in the second year, that growth happened by 85% on top of that. So that began to show us that there's something resilient about the model. There was something about the fact that even if the overall economy had shrunk during COVID, the fact that we were all still in business meant that we were still privy to maybe the businesses that were still thriving or still able to do referrals amongst each other and collaborate on projects that kept everyone going during that time. But to our end customers, that figure was at about 40% as well. Just in you know looking through the different things like we would help people identify are there still sectors that are still thriving during COVID or that are actually growing like the technology space or healthcare and the like. But over time, we've had really huge success stories. Like one of our favorites is a company called Parapet here in Nairobi that has literally grown almost fivefold from the time we began to work with them. Now they're operating in three countries in East Africa and I think employ about 4,000 employees now in the services space. And another company that I would say we have like a fintech company that's one of our clients as well here at the Sandbox. And I think they're now in 10 countries across Africa, you know, payment gateway solutions and the like. And these are just like two out of hundreds of stories I could tell you, some slower, some, you know, move faster. But just a testament to the fact that I think there's a lot of value being created on the continent. Our passion is to see a lot of it grow and scale. I don't know if you're aware that intra-Africa trade is currently at about 15 to 17% as compared to like Europe, which is at 69, or, you know, the Americas at much higher rates. So one of the things we are really, really passionate about, because there's no logical reason why Africans don't do business with each other. Like you find African countries actually doing more business or trade with Europe or the US or China than they do with each other. And some of the questions we ask ourselves is, you know, why isn't Kenya exporting fish to Nigeria, for example? You guys eat quite a lot of that and you're, you know, a large population. What are the barriers towards enabling something like that to happen? Why aren't Nigerians exporting, you know, stuff they produce 
to Kenya or DRC or this or that and the other. So one of the big visions we really have is that as we are able to open up sandboxes and we can do this virtually as well, we have gathered such three experts in a city, put them in a virtual community, give them a you know digital presence and then interconnect them across countries. So that will begin to build a trusted network across countries where if I want to do business in Lagos, I have a lawyer who can help me to set up. I have an accountant who can help me do my accounting from day one. I have a marketer to help me with a market entry strategy. So we are really passionate about, you know, growing these intra-Africa trade things and seeing African businesses just begin to grow and scale because that's been the passion from the beginning. I think you can see, I mean, uh, it may not be visual in the podcast, but you can even see right behind me, I'm in my office. We have like this mural that Africans walk all over our office and you see that. And we're like, you know, this culture just needs to be seen a lot more out there and we need to export a lot more of this to the rest of the world as well. So you're speaking my language, Joram. I'm sure you don't realize that we have so focused on changing narratives through this podcast, but through our work as well. And that's what attracts us to like-minded people like you. So definitely there's so much more Efosa and I will be talking to you about offline around how to change narratives, how to promote inter-Africa trade, and how to ensure that more of us work together to build this continent into what we know it can be. So yeah, I, I share your enthusiasm and your passion. I'm going to transition us now to some rapid fire questions because we're running out of time. So just keep your, I know your passion, I feel your passion, but keep your questions to you know a minute or so. So what encourages you the most about the current African market? I think Africans are beginning to wake up to the reality of what they're sitting on. We've been sitting on massive resources, great infrastructure, great, you know, natural resources, energetic, youthful population. I think we're beginning to realize exactly what we've been sitting on for years and didn't see its value. I hear a lot of African countries begin to talk about value addition, beginning to talk about, you know, manufacturing, processing the stuff they create in their own countries. I want to be at the forefront of that movement. I want to be at the forefront of getting more entrepreneurs. You know, the chocolate should be made in Ghana. The coltan should be processed into mobile phones in DRC. You know, the coffee, the biggest coffee shops should come from Kenya. So I'm passionate about being at the forefront of making that a reality. Wonderful. What would you like to see more of from African entrepreneurs? I think people who believe in themselves. I think people who think global. I think we really downplay our capabilities. I think we look down on ourselves and what the capabilities of our people are, which is what my experience in Europe kind of reinforced that I was not less smart than any other person. I was not less capable. And that's what really fired me up to come back home and say, guys, we can do this. And so even as we think of, say, taking Sandbox Global, I see 5,000 Sandboxes across the world. I want to see Sandboxes in China. I don't know how Sandbox is written in Mandarin, but I want to see, you know, Sandbox in a Chinese setting. And I would love to see a lot more Africans believe in themselves and do that. Yeah. Great. What's one thing you wish every young aspiring entrepreneur knew? Um, I think that to do great things, you don't have to start in a complicated way. I think if you see where we started off with Wild as young, fiery, 
you know, passionate entrepreneurs, but with almost no experience. Actually, for a very long time, I think I really struggled with just the imposter syndrome thing of, am I really qualified? Do I deserve to be here? You know, have I really created something unique? And until the rest of the world started to affirm that we really have created something unique, I would love other people to just learn that you could start something very simple, but if you're committed, dedicated, and keep building up on it, it will grow into something quite sophisticated down the line. And also, you know, I would love to tell other people that ask for help as soon as you need it. I think I spent a lot of my initial years of running a business, believing in myself and thinking that you can do great things alone. But now you can see my entire model is 100% collaborative. And so I wish we did a lot more of that than trying to be, you know, dead heroes, you know, doing everything by ourselves. I like that. Ask for help. That's critical. Now, if you could go back to the days of your first venture, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I experimented a lot at the beginning. In some cases, I think we overdid it. I think when you're a creative, you can create a bit too much than you can handle or than you can scale. And so I would tame the creativity a little bit and maybe be focused on less things. And I think we would have made faster progress. Uh, I think at some point, I remember we kind of had like products and services that kind of sprang up into like 15 different things within the business. And, you know, we didn't have, you know, massive people internally to run with all that. And so I felt like we stretched ourselves too thin, you know, into burnout and maybe not having enough resources to get everything up and running. But the moment we got more and more focused is when, you know, we began to see the traction build up and the market responding, you know, in a similar manner. When we focused 100% on entrepreneurship development is when our business really, really took off. And we had now even some of the big local and global brands wanting to partner with us because I guess they could now see a clear value proposition. Yeah, so that's what I would advise myself. Simplicity is key. Simplicity is key. I love that. And then what unique perspective do Africans have that the rest of the world could benefit from? I think community is a big one. And even in Kenya, I come from a community that is extremely, you know, village driven. We celebrate everything together. We are always, you know, doing things together, whether it's good or bad times. We'll not let someone not go to school because the whole community will rally around and make sure that things, you know, happen and that no one is left behind. And so I think I see a lot of that. I've traveled extensively across Africa and I see a lot of it replicated across a lot of African cultures and it goes back a long way. And so I think that's definitely something the rest of the world can learn. I'm sure it happens in your countries as well. But a lot of people come to Kenya from the West and they don't want to go back when their missions are done. And that's because they really value the village or community aspect they get introduced to when they're here. And so I really do think that it's something that the rest of the world needs to rediscover. Wow. Man, thank you. Thank you so much for all those nuggets of wisdom. I think entrepreneurs who listen to this are going to learn a lot. So I'm going to close us out asking you a question that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. 
You know, I think the Christian faith is it's interesting because the older you become as a Christian, the more mature you become, the easier it gets and the harder it gets as well. It's a paradox. So yeah. can you just tell us, you know, what as we close, right? What, what have you found in God's word that has stuck out to you recently? What is God teaching you right now? What season are you in? Just share with us what the Lord has been teaching you recently. Yeah, I think one of the mind-blowing things that I saw in the world, and it comes right from the beginning, where more or less the world was formless and void. And, you know, when the Lord said, let there be light, and went on, you know, day after day to create different things. Uh, For me, the intrinsic thing I see is that when we know we are made in the image and likeness of God, I think we also should just be very confident of the fact that we bear his creativity as well Mm. and his ability to bring order where there is no order, to bring light where there is darkness, to bring, you know, systematic stuff like the world was really built systematically. And when I mirror that, even into the world of business, and I always say when I walk across a lot of stuff in Africa, there's quite a bit of disorder in a lot of stuff. And I think we as the Christian business people are the ones to bring order into the spaces because we are the ones driven, you know, by God's values of integrity, of wanting, you know, to bring life back to humanity. And so I don't think we should be shy of that capability that he's given us to aggressively make things right. I think we had come from a place where there was just so much about, you know, the dark continent in quotes, but I'm like, you know, that narrative needs to change completely. And again, we need to be at the forefront of changing it and being the examples where people can see here are great, innovative, powerful businesses that are coming out of Africa, being driven by believers who are doing it with integrity and changing lives for the better. Oh, can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. We are all so thrilled by the insights you've shared today. And uh, this has been wonderful. Efosa, hasn't it? My goodness. Thank you, Joram. I, I wish I, I would. I, I were sitting with you in Nairobi having a chai. You guys like yeah. chai over there? Yes, yes. We drink a lot you of coffee. You can order chai. I'll get a coffee. You just seem like a guy. I want to I be your friend. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for inviting me to this. This has been amazing as well. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners tune in from over 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a foundation group with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch, in person or online. You can meet an hour a week with your peers from your backyard across the continent or on the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at africa.faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. All this is made possible with the special help of all our friends. Thanks to the volunteers leading entrepreneur groups and watch parties to spark this movement in your city and country. We are grateful for you and hope you'll continue to share this with friends.